0: I'm Felix Bonnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio, and this is a special episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, celebrating the Seattle Mariners making the postseason for the first time since 2001, and using that as an excuse to present nine innings, well, nine stories anyway, about Seattle baseball history. Play ball! Come catch the fever, the fever with brew is for everyone.
1: You'll be a A big home run. Your feet, clapping your hands.
0: What is you're that from? That's Brewer Fever, Fever, Fever from 1980, the theme song of the Milwaukee Brewers,
2: our old uh, American League rival here in Seattle. Here is Felix Bunnell brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. So, uh, as you've heard, it matters in the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. But apparently there are some diehard fans, I'm guessing you're one of them, <laughs> uh, who are hoping the Milwaukee Brewers would also make it uh, into the postseason the reasons are complicated but this seattle milwaukee rivalry goes way way back and the cities actually have a surprising number of things in common when it comes to pro sports so tell us about this this wish that you're clinging to
0: well the story evolved a bit since its first hatched last week and it ended up with me having a lot more sympathy for baseball fans in milwaukee than i've ever had before now for a long time i've harbored the fantasy where the mariners would face the brewers in the world series i'll tell you exactly why in a moment Unfortunately, the Brewers, who made the playoffs every year for the past four seasons straight, were mathematically eliminated Monday night. Now, many people know this first essential fact of the story. The Brewers began life as the 1969 American League expansion team called the Seattle Pilots. The Pilots were terrible. They played in crummy old Six Stadium on Rainier Avenue. They went bankrupt after one season. And a Milwaukee businessman and future baseball commissioner, Bud Selig, he snatched them away from Seattle six days before opening day 1970, Renamed them the Brewers. There was so little time to spare. The Brewers had the uh, Seattle color scheme and Seattle uniforms with the Pilots patches torn off. It was that that last minute. Uh, eventually, Washington State Attorney General Slade Gorton sued Major League Baseball. That's how we got the Mariners, who debuted in 1977. So when the Brewers moved to the National League in 1998, it became hypothetically possible for the Mariners to face them in the World Series someday. You follow me
2: here, Dave? Uh, Now I see the (laughs) scenario. And for
0: the purists and for historians who like to carry grudges, which I count myself among, that kind of historian, that would mean Seattle versus old Seattle. Wouldn't that be cool? Yes. Okay, so you're buying the premise. Okay. Now, I always wonder if anybody else thought about this potential matchup. I tracked down a young journalist in Milwaukee to test my theory. Uh, J.R. Radcliffe writes for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He said there are modern baseball connections between Wisconsin and Seattle. Uh, For instance, Scott Service is from La Crosse. Uh, Jared Kelnick is from Waukesha. And Mitch Hanniger was a minor leaguer for the Brewers.
1: But other than that, uh, those are probably the connections. I really don't think many people with the Brewers think too much about the Seattle Pilots, I'm afraid.
0: Okay. All right. But then J.R. Radcliffe said there are people who obsess about baseball past in Milwaukee and specifically about the Braves. Now, they've played in Atlanta since 1966, and just last year, they beat the Brewers on, in the playoffs on the way to winning the World Series. But from 1953 to 1965, they were Milwaukee's team. J.R. Radcliffe says that in Milwaukee, this is like 60 years after they left, the Braves are still almost mythical. He put me in touch with a guy named Bob Beege, president of the Milwaukee Braves Historical Association. Bob Beagey was there in
3: 1953. It's hard to overstate how the fans reacted. Uh, It was just insane. I was a kid. Uh, I was seven, uh, not quite seven, when they moved here. And uh, the city was just, I mean, they went crazy over this team. After waiting half a century, you can imagine uh, the reaction. So when they arrived from spring training in 53, they they came up through Chicago on a train, and uh, they disembarked on uh, Wisconsin Avenue, and there was a parade set up. They had open convertibles, and from that moment on, I mean, everybody in the area knew that they were Major League. So
0: 1953 marked the beginning of an incredible era for Major League Baseball in Milwaukee. The Braves had moved from Boston, which broke some hearts, but they still had the Red Sox there. And the Milwaukee Braves were good, and they got great. Fans loved them, and they broke all kinds of league attendance records. Future Hall of Famers like Warren Spahn and Hank Aaron were on the roster. And the Braves won the World Series in 1957 and won the pennant again in 1958. It was a golden age for the fans and the team. Now, you might have caught Bob Begey saying that Milwaukee had waited half a century to get a major league team. This is where I started to develop feelings of empathy for Bob and other longtime Milwaukee baseball fans. I had never heard this next part before. In 1901, when the American League was created, Milwaukee was home to one of the original eight teams. The team was called, you guessed it, the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, does this situation sound familiar?
3: They were not successful financially. They played in a dumpy ballpark that was uh, nothing attractive. And so they stayed one year.
0: A couple things here. That was Bob Beagie describing the inaugural season of the 1901 Milwaukee Brewers of the American League. But he could just as easily have been describing the 1969 Seattle Pilots of the American League. The parallels are downright eerie. So those original Major League Brewers left after one season, just like the Pilots, and they moved in 1902 to St. Louis and changed their name to the Browns, eventually moved to Baltimore and became the Orioles in 1954. So when the Braves came in 1953, Milwaukee had been waiting for 52 years to get back a Major League Baseball team. I mean, Seattle only had to wait, what, seven years for the Mariners, though it's 14 and counting if you're looking at the Sonics and NBA. Now, with the Braves, Milwaukee had about a decade before it all went sour. The Braves weren't terrible. They never had a losing season in Milwaukee. But a new owner from Chicago, William Bartholomew, in 1962 started shopping around for a better deal in a bigger TV market. Atlanta was on the rise and had built a new stadium and had the backing of Coca-Cola. And so they got themselves a baseball team.
3: It was very bitter the last year that they were here. They they wanted to move to Atlanta in time for the 1965 season. And they were stopped because they uh, had a lease on county Stadium, that they had to fulfill. So it, they had one year uh, as a lame duck team, and their attendance was just over half a million. So it was about a fifth of what it had been at its peak.
0: So by 1966, Milwaukee baseball fans were heartbroken. You can almost say they had been clay Bennetted had their team sold out from under them, then moved away. So that's when Milwaukee businessman Bud Selig, who was only in his early 30s, started Chris Hansening, looking for a team to buy. So with the pilot's problems in 1969 and ultimate bankruptcy, they were ripe for the picking, and Bud Selig pulled it off in 1970.
3: Bud Selig is the champion of the current brewers, I mean, former owner and so forth. But he worked tirelessly. I sound like a PR man for him, but um, he really did.
0: But even a new major league team wasn't enough to heal Bob Beagie's wounds. He told me he was so disillusioned by the departure of the Braves, he didn't even go to a Milwaukee Brewers game until their second season in 1971. And he said those first several years of crummy Brewers baseball were heartbreaking for anyone who'd been around for the glory years of the Milwaukee Braves. So my takeaway, Dave, um, baseball history rhymes, repeats, and often breaks your heart. And uh, that's why I say go Mariners or... Um, what I would really like to say today is, uh, go, go, you pilots. Can, can you sing this with me here? I think you know the words by heart probably, right? <laughs> go,
4: go, you pilots, you big Seattle
5: team. Go, go, you pilots, go out and build York.
0: Anyway, yeah, that's, so that's, that's that's baseball history in a nutshell right there. The history repeats itself, and those 1901 Brewers are just like the 1969 Pilots. It's almost sort of terrifying. So you were
2: hoping for a, a Mariners-Brewers face-off.
0: Wouldn't that be great to see the Mariners beat the Brewers after the team left here, what is that, 52 years ago? I
2: think that would blow a hole in space-time <laughs> and doom us all.
4: <laughs> this world's not ready for that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Felix Bunnell, his uh, features are all at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Go, go, you Pilots
3: baseball baseball the tigers and baseball baseball ted Williams and baseball baseball i love the game baseball yankees red legs braids white well, socks don't,
2: <laughs> don't have enough baseball songs anymore here it is march 1st 19 days from the start of spring itself and 40 days from the first pitch at safeco field in the meantime we have spring training and that's where historian Felix Benell comes in. Brought to you by the King County Library System. So spring training from years past.
0: Yeah, you know the Mariners have been in Peoria for years. They were in Tempe before that. It's you know it's it's all very, uh, very formal. You could buy tickets. It's a beautiful facility. Long before the Mariners, you know, almost a century ago, Seattle's pro baseball team was the Indians of the Pacific Coast League. They had spring training too, but it wasn't quite as nice as it was in Peoria. But first, we have to understand who the Indians actually were. Um, the team was a big deal, and they had lots of fans, especially when they were winning. That hasn't changed. Right. I asked local baseball historian David Eskenazi what the Seattle Indians meant to people around here in the 1920s. The
1: Seattle Indians franchise in the 20s was really pretty successful the first half of the decade. Between 1920 and 1925, they finished between first and fourth, I think, five out of six years including the first Pacific Coast League championship in 1924 which was a real tight race right down to the wire gave fans of the 20s you know a taste of, of winning a pennant in the Pacific Coast League
0: wow so, so this was new for me because spring training for the Indians they didn't have a single place they returned to every year it turns out they trained out in a trained in a new community almost every year in the 1920s and 1930s really moved around and every place they trained was a small town in California near Los Angeles or San Francisco I mean who's heard of Taft, Hanford, Stockton, Santa Maria, Santa Cruz, Hermosa Beach, San Clemente, San Bernardino, Bakersfield. These aren't places you normally think of as stops on a historic baseball tour uh, tour of historic baseball sites. So I asked Pacific Coast League Historical Society member uh, Bill Castellanos why teams like the Indians moved around so much.
1: We're talking about the Depression years. It was trying to get the best deal available. Each city had some access to money, but not necessarily what the ball club really needed. So. They had to pick the cities based on what what their availability of funds would be. Beyond that, I think it's all pure, pure guesswork.
0: But I also reached out to a lot of historians and museums in and, and those baseball ghost towns. And uh, Lori Ware is a curator at the Kern Museum in Bakersfield. She told me baseball was huge in Baker, Bakersfield in the 1920s and 30s. You know, before the rise of basketball and football, it really was the American pastime.
1: We had all kinds of baseball teams, like the various oil field companies would have baseball teams, or various businesses would sponsor teams just as a pastime. A lot of people in there off hours. They played baseball. So
0: what kind of places would they play in and would they draw crowds? Yeah I mean it's uh, it's, Lori Ware was able to actually track down that one of the deals that brought the Seattle Indians to Bakersfield in 1928.
1: They were given a $5,000 guarantee if they were willing to hold their spring training here. About $2,200 of that would cover their hotel expenses while they were in town (laughs) and the additional $2,800 was paid to teams from out of town, like the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Chicago Cubs, a club from Denver, and the LA Colored Giants. So it, it, it was the really lot of all,
2: zeros missing from those
0: numbers. Yeah, it was all about the money. I mean, they basically played cities off against each other. It sounds just like these stadium deals now. Like you'd, you'd read in the newspaper in the in November of one year that. A certain town was trying to draw the team away from where they'd spent the training the previous year to come to their town. And so the local Lions Club in Bakersfield, they paid the team 5000 bucks, and then they sold tickets to try to recoup oh, their see. investment and, and make a profit. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it was brilliant, but it meant this sort of peripatetic, you know, moving around every year to a different place with a new ballpark and a hotel. And just, it'd be great to go through California and tour all these, like, Twelve or fifteen towns that hosted the Seattle Rainiers back ninety years ago.
2: Yeah, well, it is it is big business now. You ever been down to spring training? I have never been. We did that one year, and it is it is a a celebration of uh, sunshine, uh, hot dogs, baseball, apple pie, the whole thing, and uh, it's it's glorious. But it. it doesn't have that uh, that small-town feel necessarily.
0: No, you know, my favorite year, they also they went to San Clemente for two years, which is a town in California where President Nixon eventually lived. That town was created by former Seattle Mayor Oli Hansen. I never knew this before. He resigned oh. after the general strike, went to California, and created San Clemente, and then the Indians played there for two years. How about that? Everything Felix does is at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix.
2: Not quite true to the blue, but um, a snappy slogan nonetheless. Historian Felix Spinell is here, brought to you by the King County Library System. And uh, I realize that um, people have given up on the matters for the year. I I think they they play pretty entertaining uh, baseball. In any case, (laughs) Felix is here. Our resident historian is here to uh, take a
0: listen back to some of the earlier voices of Seattle baseball on the radio. Well, any story about baseball history in Seattle, you have to start this one particular cut. And I think nine years after he passed away, I think it's safe to say that everybody knows who Dave Niehaus is.
6: And the 0-1 pitcher on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung
3: on the line. That'll left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it it just continues my oh my mm.
0: <laughs> so that's my story so anyway i'll see you next week <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. that's all you need. No, <laughs> any excuse to play always gives me chills i get tears <laughs> in my eyes tingles in the back of my neck greatest moment in seattle history and also so maybe because we've talked about him a few times before I mean, because seattle is a town that loves its baseball history perhaps a lot of people even remember leo Lassen.
6: look the Grazo, goes into his windup. here comes that ball uh... It's a high fly back to the left field wall, back,
0: back, 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 <laughs> and it's over! That, uh, that's Leo Lassen broadcasting a Seattle Rainier-Pacific Coast League game at 6 Stadium on King Radio back in the late 40s. Oh. Now, in case you don't know Leo Lassen, uh, here's local baseball historian Dave Eskenazi. Ask a lifelong Mariners fan what their experience
1: would have been like without Dave Niehaus, and you'll get an idea of what pro baseball in Seattle would have been like without Leo Lassen. Over that formative period, he created really a whole generation or two of uh, baseball fans. He was a beloved figure. He was a radio announcer here from 1931 to 1960. And, uh, you know, he had an intricate knowledge of the game. He knew the rule book from cover to cover. But most importantly, he was able to explain the finer points and the flow of the game to his listeners in a manner that made them loved baseball more and gave them a, a richer
0: experience as fans. He made really better baseball fans with his skill. So that's pretty incredible. 1931 to 1960. But um, in between Leo Lassen and Dave Niehaus, we had the Seattle Pilots, who we heard their exhortation to go, 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 and go away. They did, of course. That yeah. was 50 years ago. The Pilots broadcast team of Bill Shanley and Jimmy Dudley never had a chance to become beloved because they only had a year on the air here for KVI. Um, here's Bill Shawnley calling the a pilots' game. It's late in the game against the California Angels at six stadium on a Sunday afternoon in September 1969.
6: In the seventh inning for the Pilots, who now need three runs to tie the California Angels. Don Mincher, Jerry McNertney, and Fred Stanley. Andy Messersmith has allowed the pilots just one hit. They have managed to run. One run on one hit. Message has struck out eight. He is walk three and he is of about it. just swings on the first pitch. A drive to center field. Cowan underneath that baseball, hauls it down, and there's that number
0: one. Doesn't that sound just like a Mariners game? It's late in the game, they're down, swing on the first pitch and the first out. It's just like it's, it's like, I listened to the whole game last night from that nineteen sixty-nine game. It was a big flashback, yeah, a but, but like a living flashback. Final score was four to two, uh, Angels, of course. In nineteen seventy the pilots became the Milwaukee Brewers and Bill Shanley became the voice of the Portland Trailblazers, and he's still alive well into his nineties. So here's a part where we go uh, inside baseball, literally. Um, Before Niehaus, before Sean Lee, and before Leo Lassen, the history of baseball on the radio in Seattle is a little murky. But I did some digging the past few days. I think I can shed some light on the pre-Leo era. So the first radio broadcast of any baseball game in history is generally thought to be the summer of 1921 when a guy named Harold Arlen broadcast a Pittsburgh Pirates game on a station called KDKA, which is famous for promoting itself as the first radio station in the history of mankind. You know, radio emerged as a thing that summer of 21. There was a boxing match from Hoboken, New Jersey, that was carried all around the country by telegraph, including here in Seattle. So radio emerges as something that just not just uh, gearheads are into in the summer of 21. Now, the first mention of a baseball game on the radio in Seattle, I could find, was April fourth, 1922. This was the Seattle Indians playing the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League in San Francisco for their season opener, Seattle won. Now, this wouldn't have been live from San Francisco with an announcer. This was an unknown person in a rudimentary radio studio here in Seattle getting telegraph updates from the ballpark in San Francisco and then telling the listeners what was happening, maybe filling in the blanks, what they call a telegraph recreation. What Ronald Reagan used to do. Yeah, exactly. Lots of people did that. And they continued into the 1950s for certain cheap radio stations. So April 22, it's so early in radio radio history, the newspaper radio listing doesn't even name a station call letters. Every station on the dial has the same frequency. And there is no dial. It's just here's what's on the radio. And so from the archives, I couldn't figure out what happened with local baseball between 1923 and 1926. But in 1925, Seattle station KFOA carried the World Series, also by Telegraph. Um, they, was, they said that a network of 73 cities um, had people called Associated Press Radio Mouths who broadcast the action. Radio local. Mouths? Radio Mouth. I, I don't think I caught on. It was in this one particular article. I'm not sure if it caught Sounds on. Sounds like a, a disease. <laughs> it's great. I'm going to start using that, actually. Maybe that's a great Twitter handle. Um, Anyway, so it, KOA is a station locally, KFOA is a station locally that began carrying Seattle Indians games in 1927. The guy was named Arthur Lindsay. I checked with some of the most knowledgeable radio historians of the Pacific Northwest. Nobody's heard of Arthur Lindsay. He was the voice of the Seattle Indians in 1927 when they did only away games because they thought the home games would uh, diminish ticket sales. Uh-huh. Other, but they figured out by 1928 here in Seattle, they carried the whole season live. Uh, The away games were telegraphic recreations. The home games were live from Dugdale Park right there on Rainier Avenue where uh, Six Stadium is now. Uh, So then in 1929, uh, Arthur Lindsay is gone, and a guy named Ken Stewart is on KOL uh, carrying the games. Very little coverage that year in the newspaper. But then in 1930, the games moved to KJR, and Ken Stewart, who's famous for this program called the Sunshine Program, which featured his homespun philosophy, poetry, and music, he's the voice of the Seattle Indians, including for the first night game when they put in lights at Dugdale Park. He also broadcasts hockey games from the Civic Ice Arena. He's really kind of the first all-around sports it announcer all, guy. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So sometime in 1931, uh, Stewart goes away, and Leo Lassen takes over. So if you know Arthur Lindsay, and you know Ken Stewart, now you know all you need to know about early Seattle baseball radio history. Um, I talked to this uh, professor who wrote a book a couple of years ago called "The Crack of the Bat." I asked him, you know, how different were those broadcasts years ago? Would they sound, would would they be recognizable? He said things were pretty primitive.
1: Until you get to the late 1920s, there was no broadcast booth. I mean, they were sitting in the stands or maybe a covered area of the stands, but they were just sitting out there. Uh, uh, Harold Arlen, when he did his first broadcast, just brought a board and a microphone and an engineer uh, and an amplifier and the wires and just set a board, you know, at a box seat and, you know, put his microphone on it and began talking.
0: Oh. That's the magic of baseball on the radio. Was that was that the Harold Arlen, the the Hollywood composer? I don't think it's the same guy. I think it's a yeah. different guy. But that's, I, I wondered that as I was hearing him say that name just now. But uh, Arthur Lindsay and Ken Stewart, we have to do our best to, to rehabilitate their images and bring them back into the pantheon of Seattle radio broadcasting yeah. history. And if anybody has any old
2: uh, uh, discs of these guys' voices, you'd oh. welcome them, right? Oh, I would love to hear any wire yeah. recordings.
0: What, what do they have? By, right? What do
2: they Wire recordings, wire recordings
0: are a little bit after that. There might have been some kind of early phonograph recording, but radio recordings from the 1920s are almost nonexistent. There's just a few things here from 1929 that I've ever heard.
2: Historian Felix Benell joins us every Wednesday, and all his pieces are archived for posterity at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks
0: Brazo goes into
6: his windup. Here comes that ball. It's a high fly back to the left field wall. Back, 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 back. And it's over.
2: So there <laughs> there were home run calls before Dave Niehaus. Here's Felix Bennell. Visiting us from the uh, crypt deep beneath
0: the Bonneville Broadcast Center with today's lesson in history. And that, of course, is... That's the voice of Leo Lassen, the great Leo Lassen, the original voice of baseball in Seattle. He was the broadcaster for the uh, Rainiers, actually originally the Seattle Indians, from the early 1930s to the late 1950s, mostly from Six Stadium down in the Rainier Valley, where that Lowe's hardware store is now. He called his last game around 1960, and he died in 1975 at the age of 76. And he's mostly forgotten by anyone under age 70, you yeah. know, including myself. Um, but there's no statue or no mural or anything. Like he, he does. He's not as well-known as Dave Niehaus, certainly. But there's a little bit of Leo left in Seattle's Wallingford neighborhood where baseball history is in bloom.
5: No question there. Yeah, this whole yard was roses. He knew every variety. He he was a major hobby. He was good at it, too. He really was. And as he got older, that's probably why he hired me. Mm-hmm. It's because it was getting a little tough on him, you know, to get down and tend to him. I mean, every s- square foot in this yard was taken, but he kept me busy there.
4: So let me get, get this straight.
0: His his legacy is a rose garden? It's a yard full of roses in the house that he hasn't lived in for more than 40 years. It's kind of cool. Oh. It's like a little out of the way. It's on a kind of a busy street in Wallingford, and that's Dave Christensen talking, David Christian. He's 61, but when he was a little kid, he got the cool, very cool job of tending Leo Lassen's roses for him. And he wasn't really old enough to understand who Leo was at the time, but his dad and his uncle really made it clear that Leo had been this incredible you know, voice of baseball in the city from the 30s to the 50s. And Christensen moved away as a young man in the early 70s, but he came back and he's been living in his childhood home since the year 2000. And when he moved back, he noticed that most of these roses were dead, but there were several in the front yard. And then the house changed hands, and when the new people moved in, a guy named Steve Pignotti, David went over there and told him the whole story, and Steve was from out of town and didn't know who Leo Lassen was, but he's a big baseball fan. And he's excited, but he also feels bad because, you know, he's, he's not much of a gardener and he hasn't done much to keep these roses alive. But somehow they're still, they're still blooming there along the street in Wallingford. And so I met with David Christensen in, in Steve Pignotti's living room the other day. This is Leo Lassen's old room, living room, of course. And I asked David, is there any clue, were there any clues back in the old days that this was a, a baseball house? And he said, yeah, you know, the back, the back den, there was a TV and some pictures on the wall where he would watch baseball games and stuff. But the only other clue was down in the basement.
5: And down there he had a chest of drawers that contained about every rule book for Major League Baseball and boy there he knew every he knew every rule My father told me once that uh, there was times when Uster officials would ask Leo on rulings and he would seem to know them so I, it just every book was stacked. Yeah.
0: And of course that's the era before social media and that's a long time ago, right? That last yeah. game that he called back in nineteen sixties. So it's but I asked David Christian, you know, why was Leo Lassen so popular? I mean, was it was he such a big celebrity in, in Seattle fifty six years ago? Fifty or sixty years ago, or was there something special about him?
5: I don't know, a celebrity, but uh he was popular for for baseball and a lot of people knew him. I mean that's we were just that's all we had. Was a, minor league baseball at that time in the Huskies, that was about it so that was big stuff it was more fun back then,
2: huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to believe. That that was the uh, the only major. Well, I guess you had Husky Crew. Husky Crew was big back in the old days. I
0: know. Yeah, I mean Husky Sports was huge, and people listened to NFL games from uh, California teams back in those days. But this was the really the only home team that people yeah. followed avidly. And Leo Lassen's voice was probably the best known voice in this region for about more than twenty years. And so let's hear one more. the Nice play over to first base. He's out. A
6: sharp runner off for Kowski's left side. They could jump to his left. Came up with the ball. A short bounce. A hard hit ball right in the web of the glove. Took a little run to his left toward second base and threw him out easily. And that's the second out. Of at
0: yeah. It's it's an odd accent too. I think he was from the Midwest, but he moved yeah. here as a very young child. And he's got this very strange, which a lot of people talk that way back here. I around think you here, had to then. because you, apparently they were talking through yeah. telephones all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he did those recreations where he the, the team would be on the road and he'd be getting telegraph reports describing the action. Oh, really? He'd have sound effects. He had to fill yeah,
2: nobody would know the difference. They so the teletype and the whole thing. Did yeah, you just sound effects. They, I remember I got a tour once and they had the whole sound effects box which they used to use because they'd get the score, the, the running score on ticker tapes. Yep. And, and, of course, there was no line. It was too expensive to hire a broadcast line out there. So they had actually have sounds of the, the crack of the bat and the, the snap of the glove and crowd cheering. And yeah. they'd just make the whole thing up. And my favorite
0: part about that is when the telegraph would break down for some reason, he would have whoever was at bat just hit foul ball after foul <laughs> ball after foul ball <laughs> until the information <laughs> came back online. They could start actually recounting what the action was via teletype. And this was his home run call? the back 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 yeah, yeah this I is famous. Back to the
3: left field wall. back 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 back
0: back <laughs> and it's over Isn't that gra- it's so great that baseball's fun again in seattle this year it's been so long ah it's great to have the mariners doing well this year yeah see this game
2: yesterday oh, incredible 16 runs to something
0: yeah yeah let's, let's 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 not jinx it exactly
6: good evening ladies and gentlemen as fast and dramatic news from europe tonight tense news that makes your spine tingle and your heart stop cold That reassurance we enjoyed last night following Chancellor Hitler's speech at Nuremberg is gone today. It's gone as completely as if his words had never been spoken.
2: It was 80 years ago this week. The Seattle Rainiers were just a few games back at the Los Angeles Angels in the pennant race for the Pacific Coast League. And historian Felix Spinell is here to revisit that magical season and to remind us who the Fred Hutchinson Cancer and Research Center was named for. And maybe even inspire my performance on the mound later today. Uh, Felix is brought to us by the King County Library <laughs> System.
0: One can only hope yes um, that little clip we heard that was uh, you know we're in the middle of Munich crisis 80 years ago as Europe teetered on the brink of World War II and it would be delayed for a year of course. but it was also one there's also one week to go in the magical first season of the Seattle Rainiers. They'd previously been the Seattle Indians till ML Sick, the uh, Rainier brewery guy bought them and built a new stadium. The day before they'd taken a doubleheader from the Hollywood stars. Where Lowe's Home Improvement now stands on Rainier Avenue, where Six Stadium was, it was the team's 10th and 11th straight victories. They'd won 25 of their last 28. The Pacific League, um, Pacific Coast League pennant was in sight. Now, one of those doubleheaders that they won was also the 25th victory of incredible homegrown pitcher, Franklin High School graduate Fred Hutchinson, who was all of 19 years old. So, Dave, it seemed like a perfect time to revisit his career and figure out why the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center is named for him. My first call was to my favorite sports historian about town, David Eskenazi.
1: He signed with the brand-spanking-new Seattle Rainiers baseball team in 1938. So local kid, and he was a phenom. He won 25 games as an 18- and 19-year-old in 1938. It was 25- and 7, had a 248 ERA. And recall, this was when there was no Major League teams west of the Mississippi. Major Leagues only had 16 teams. The Pacific Coast League was just a notch or so below the Major Leagues. And here's an 18-year-old kid winning 25 games. So he was the real deal.
0: Yeah, Fred Hutchison was the real deal, and earlier in that 1938 season, he was part of one of the most legendary events in local sports history when he took the mound one Friday in August.
1: He won his 19th game on his 19th birthday, August 12, 1938, in front of an overflow crowd at Six Stadium. The seating capacity was about 12,000 there, and I think there was 16,000 people there that night. They had them roped off in the outfield because everybody wanted to be there. And I I think I personally have talked to about 20,000 people that said they were at the game over the years.
0: And after that 38 season, Hutch was, of course, the hottest prospect in the major leagues. The Rainiers sold him to the Detroit Tigers for $50,000 and four players. Three of those four players would help lead the Rainiers to three consecutive Pacific Coast League championships, but that's a story for another day. Fred Hutch went on to a long career with the Tigers. He was in the Navy for four years during World War II. Came back to Seattle in the 1950s to manage the Rainiers to their final pennant in 1955. Managed the St. Louis Cardinals. Even managed the Cincinnati Reds and won the pennant, but then lost to the Yankees in five games in the 61 World Series. He was managing the Reds when he was diagnosed with cancer. He had a thymoma, kind of a chest tumor. And he passed away in 1964 at the, just the young age of 45, and he's buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Renton. So that's part of the reason that this cancer center is named for him. His older brother, Bill, was also a surgeon here in Seattle and had been a baseball player himself. He led the effort to create the center. He started raising money locally, and then in the early 70s, he got $5 million from the federal government as part of the Nixon administration's war on cancer. So I spoke with Dr. Fred Applebaum. He's deputy director of the Hutch. He concedes that name recognition of the pitching great might not be what it was just a few decades ago, but he says the spirit of Fred Hutch is very much alive in the annual Hutch Award, which they give out to Major League Baseball players who've shown grit, and in one other meaningful way.
1: By naming it after Fred Hutchinson, I think it does tie the center to the community in a, in a very tangible way. If it was named after someone who was, you know, uh, in, in some other state or other country, I don't think it would make the Hutch's roots part of Seattle. And, and the Fred Hutch has been very much part of Seattle's culture. Uh, we've certainly depended on philanthropy from Seattle. We take care of patients from Seattle. So we, we hope we're part of the, the Seattle culture.
0: Now I asked Dave Eskenazi one more question. I thought might help you today with your pitching appearance, Dave. Yes. I asked, did Hutch have a signature pitch or some kind of trademark heat that he brought to the mound for the Rainiers?
1: No, not really. Just just grit. He didn't have the best stuff, but he just had that just that fierce desire to compete and to win, and uh, you know it, it brought him a long way. He was just really a ferocious competitor. And, he had quite a temper, too. Sounds just like
0: you, Dave. You know, <laughs> yes, they, it does. They told me uh, they put a punching bag in the locker room at 6th Stadium in, the 50, in 1955 that Fred Hutchinson could punch, just like we have here at Cairo for you downstairs.
2: Yeah, I, that's what I might be doing after my one pitch today, depending <laughs> on uh, how. I, that's a great story. And I don't think many people
5: uh,
0: knew
2: that. Yeah, amazing guy, Freddie the Iceman Hutchinson. Felix Spinelli, you can hear him every Wednesday on Seattle's Morning News, and all his features are at time. <laughs>
7: Oh, that was great. Go, go, ye pilots. Go, go, ye pilots. And, God, they went.
0: <laughs> they did. That's 86-year-old Bill Shonley. He and Jimmy Dudley were the broadcast team for the Seattle Pilots, the Major League Baseball club that played here for just one season back in
6: 1969. Now it's the third inning in a nothing-to-nothing ball game, and you're now to bring you the action as Bill Shonley. Bill? All right, Jimmy, thank you very much. Well, California, the top three of the order once again, Alomar Spencer and Jim Fregosi.
0: Sean Lee grew up outside of Philadelphia, hearing legendary baseball voices like Mel Allen, Red Barber, and Bill Stern. He dreamed of one day being a big league broadcaster himself. He came to Seattle in the 1950s and broadcast a lot of local sports. Then came the chance of a lifetime.
7: The city finally got a hold of a major league baseball franchise. And as a relatively young man in those days... I got to be a Major League Baseball broadcaster with the Seattle Pilots. And I thought at that time, my goodness, I always enjoyed baseball and doing uh, the broadcast. I might be in baseball for the rest of my life, but it only lasted that uh, little over one year.
0: The Pilots played just one solitary losing season here. Then they went bankrupt and left town.
7: So the people, the Major League folks from uh, from the American League all got together and decided to take the franchise away. Seattle, God bless them at the time, tried their darndest to keep that franchise right where it was because uh, Seattle and the Northwest, they were the major leagues as far as baseball were concerned. Well, it did not work out. There A lot of things going on behind the scenes, but that's the basic story. So that the Seattle pilots then became. The Milwaukee Brewers.
0: There were plenty of backroom and front office shenanigans that sent the Pilots on their way. But since voters in 1968 had approved the Kingdome based on having a team, a lawsuit against Major League Baseball got the Mariners in 1977. But all that was in the future. In 1969, the Pilots played at Six Stadium along Rainier Avenue, where a Lowe's Home Improvement Store now stands. Six was built back in the 1930s for the Seattle Rainiers of the Pacific Coast League. Shonley says it had its own unique charm.
7: Well, it, let's see, how do you describe it in this day and age? <laughs> it was nothing in those days, but let's put it that way. The field itself, the playing surface, was it was manicured to the nth degree. Everything was fine, but had no seats to speak of. You know, there were no suites, no anything. We had A 100 hot dog stands, I guess, you know, and soda stands and things like that. It was old school.
0: The characters were old school, too, including pilot's manager, Joe Schultz.
7: Joe Schultz, he was one of the greatest guys, one of the great characters I've met, and all the people that uh, I have known in sports. You know, at at the end of the ball game at home at 6 Seattle Stadium, I had to go down and do a post-game show. So Jimmy Dudley would finish up the game. So I would get down and sit and stand in the dugout there. And Chelsea and I knew one another. He used to turn around and say, the bud's going to taste good tonight. One of the few times that the pilots would win the game. And he had some great phrases, which <laughs> I can't repeat right now, but he, he, he was just a great human being.
0: When the pilots went to Wisconsin, Sean Lee could have gone with them. Instead, he decided to stay in the Northwest. Opportunity came knocking almost immediately.
7: Harry Glickman, who put together the Portland Trailblazers, he found out that I was available. He called me and he said, how would you like to do uh, NBA basketball? Well, I had done everything else in the world, but I wasn't too much involved in the NBA in those times. And I said, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I came down to Portland And uh, we talked, and we shook hands, and that was 46 years ago. I'm still with the Blazer organization.
0: Bill Shonley spent the rest of his career with the Trailblazers, including that team's 1977 NBA World Championship. But he still thinks about baseball and what might have been and what could still be.
7: Just a shame that the Pilots and the city of Seattle couldn't put that situation together in those years. But... The Mariners are there and they've had quite a run. I hope they have a great year this year.
0: Let's all lift a cold one in memory of the Pilots and Schulte and hope it's going to taste good for Mariners fans on plenty of nights this season. I'm Felix Bennell for Cairo Radio.
6: In the fourth inning for the Pilots, Wayne Comer, Steve Hoadley, and Danny Walden. And the Pilots are still looking for that first base hit off the right hander, Andy Messerschmitt.
8: Yeah. Stacy, are you clear? Clear. Mark, are you
3: clear? Clear. This is your one-minute siren, CDI. This is your one-minute
9: siren. Okay, we are 60 seconds away from the Seattle skyline forever changing. Kingdom has been, uh, for better or for worse, one of the most distinctive landmarks in the city, along with the Space Needle for the last quarter century and now about 40 seconds away from our skyline forever changing as the kingdom will come down. Soon to follow a new football stadium. Begins play a little over two years from now. With 30 seconds away.
4: Helicopters overhead. The crowd standing by Elliott Bay, packed with boats, crowds under the Alaskan Way viaduct, crowds on the 12th Avenue Bridge, crowds on the side of Beacon Hill, just below the Amazon.com headquarters.
9: And I'm with you, Dave. My heart is just pounding right yeah. now, waiting for this Literally. to Nine, eight. Here it goes. Tremendous dust cloud. We did I got it, see- uh, That looked terrific from the north end, guys. Nothing out this way. Yeah, uh, coming uh,
4: There's coming a huge from dust. the command post, uh, that's a great uh, bit of news, Jim. This is Mark.
9: Going down Occidental, it looked great. It really pulled hard off Occidental. The, the dust cloud north is north moving north this north way. The on the east Slowly though. Approach. And it is, the dust cloud is completely engulfed. The Alaskan Way viaduct is moving towards the waterfront. And it is coming towards us as well. But and Some of the
4: people are running from who are under the viaduct seem to be running away to escape the dust cloud. It's moving slowly in this direction, but it hasn't completely covered the stadium exhibition hall. Did you notice how the explosion rippled across the ribs? Yes. Of the, um, of the dome, and then it was just uh, gone. And I can tell you the stadium shook. It was, uh, oh, I was leaning against the pole here, here. It was way. rocking back and forth. And you could feel the percussive effect in your midsection. Yeah,
9: yeah. It, it, uh, definitely you felt it uh, to your very center of your body as it exploded out. And as you just heard from the checkpoints, it sounds like it was textbook. They didn't have any debris going outward, nope. uh, at least from the north lot, which is one of the directions they were most concerned about. Uh, it, everything went just as planned inward nobody can see anything right now except for a dust cloud that i would guess dave is probably about six seven hundred feet up into the sky and it has radiated out to the west to where it is now out to the waterfront very distinctive boundary to this dust cloud it's radiated out to the waterfront uh the wind must be very slightly from the south because it's not coming our way at all no, it's anymore. just
4: up to the edge of the stadium exhibition hall it has engulfed the alaskan wave viaduct so that's going to have to remain closed until um until it's dissipated you can still see people moving away from where they were standing under the viaduct because uh, they'd certainly get a lungful if they stayed there the roof of the dome just shuddered it sort of uh,
9: turned to turned to jelly is mm-hmm. what it looked like and then it was gone as they if uh, the explosives were resonating around the kingdom you could see first the roof started to shake and then as the roof came in You saw the walls, at least the top of the walls, that uh, were connected to each other, held up by the roof itself. They started to collapse in, and then at that point, the dust cloud engulfed the kingdom. And uh, nobody's going to have a good look for several, several minutes before this dust cloud settles. We still cannot see any of the downtown buildings. Before the dome uh, went up or went down, we were able to have a pretty good view of the Columbia Center and all of the downtown skyline. It's just pea soup now, and it's kind of it's a strange brownish-gray uh,
4: cloud that's in front of us. I can't smell a thing, though. There's no explosive smell. No. There's no dust smell in the air. Uh, the hurricane-force winds did not materialize.
9: What a remarkable thing. So, so <laughs> it that really theory is quite is awesome. Bogus. Yes, it is. As, well, as how do you feel? You're not overcome. I, I don't know Un- until I see the hole where the kingdom used to be. Right now, it, it's it's just a big cloud of dust,
4: and uh, I see the top of the uh, Bank America Tower now is yeah. appearing, but that's it. That's all you can see. It is
2: September. The Mariners continue to flirt with their first postseason appearance in two decades. And one part of the team that's been consistent in good years and bad are player nicknames. And so, our resident historian and detective, Felix (laughs) Bennell, went in search of the origins of Cuffs, the Sheriff, and Tuna. (laughs)
0: Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, morning. Dave. Yeah, that Pink Panther theme, of course, relates directly to a Mariner nickname from the past. We'll get to in a moment. Um, You know, nicknames are everywhere. Pro athletes seem to have the best ones. You know, downtown Freddie Brown from the Sonics. I think that still resonates decades later. And I'm guessing Beast Mode from Marshawn Lynch will be around forever. Uh, I think baseball, though, has far more nicknames than the other sports, and the pace of the game allows a lot of time for those names to be repeated by the broadcasters. I talked to sports historian Dave Eskenazi. He told me even before radio, like more than 100 years ago, there was at least one great baseball nickname around here.
1: His name was Frank Raymond, and his nickname was Teeley. He managed a championship team here in 1912. He was a kind of a good field, no-hit shortstop for for many years. And he was a little guy, he was like five foot three, and just a redhead. And a buddy and I finally kind of tracked down the origin of the nickname. They said it was it came from the a teal duck.
0: Yeah, so tealy, and uh, everyone knows a teal's a small duck with a cinnamon-colored head. Frank Raymond, of course. We do now. (laughs) Not exactly beast mode. You get the idea, though. And Dave Eskenazi says the best nicknames, they're sort of about love and familiarity.
1: I think because they make fans feel closer to the players and to the team. It's like a term of endearment. You know, and if you have a teammate calling another teammate a certain nickname, and you can kind of say that out loud, too, you feel more a part of the festivities. I think that's kind of the essence of it.
0: I also had a long conversation with Randy Adamack of the Mariners. He's semi-retired now. Most, um, most recently, he was senior VP and advisor to the chairman and CEO. He came to Seattle back in the summer of 1978 in the middle of the Mariners' second season to work in communications. He's working on a team history project now. And so a few years ago, he put together a master list of nicknames going all the way back to 1977. To do that, he reached out to several people to get their input.
10: The other thing I did was I kind of laid out a ground rule that it wasn't just a matter of adding a, a, an IE or a Y to a name like Cammie or Boonie or, as, as examples. You know, it had to be something that was just a nickname that didn't, wasn't just initials and it wasn't just, just adding the, that E sound at the end of a name.
0: So, A Rod doesn't count. Even Junior doesn't really count because it's just sort of a diminutive, just a shortening of their name. So, we went through Randy Adamack's list. Here's just a few of the highlights. Do you remember um, right fielder Jay Buhner, AKA mm-hmm. Bone?
10: He's told me that he got that nickname when he was playing, uh, I think it was junior college baseball. He was an outfielder, and he went out toward the wall to make a play, and got, the ball hit him in the head, and they started calling him Bonehead, and then it just got shortened to Bone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's better than Bonehead, Yeah. <laughs> How about um, Norm Charlton? Do you recall his nickname? Yep. Yeah. The Sheriff. Now, I didn't know anything about the origins of that.
10: He just had his that way about him. He's from Texas. He was kind of a tough guy. And after an inning, after he got the side out, he would twirl his glove sort of like a gun, you know? <laughs> but he would just twirl it like a basketball player would twirl, twirl a basketball on his finger. <laughs>
0: Now, here's one that's a little more obscure. Um, there was a reliever who was from Ellensburg. This is back in 1980. His name was Dave Haverlow, one of the first major league players to shave his head, right? Now, I remember reading in the game program of the Kingdom that year that his nickname was Beldar, which was after the <laughs> cone head on Saturday <laughs> yeah, Night Live, right. played by Nanak right now. Randy Adamak says that Dave Haverlow prefers an alternate. The
10: nickname that he uses himself and that I remember from back in the day was Tuna. <laughs> Um, because it's just his body type, basically.
0: <laughs> Wait, help me understand. What's the tuna body type?
10: Well, he looks like a tuna, I mean, like a big. You know, there's not much shape to it. It's just, uh, and he and he. Call, in fact, I mean, I've gotten a couple of emails from him, a text messages or whatever, recently, and he signs it tuna.
0: Yeah, so the, there you go. That I don't think the a...
10: fins would get in the way of his.
0: <laughs> Yeah, and so the Beldar thing—I've been—I've been—I've uh, been corrected on that one. Now, here's one that I would call uh, a special category. Which there's several of these. But this is probably the best one of ironic nicknames.
10: We had a catcher named Jerry Naron, N-A-R-R-O-N, who was very quiet, never said a word, and his nickname was Gabby.
0: <laughs> I like how dry that is. baseball is so literary. I like that kind of dryness that it takes you a second to understand yeah. that one. Now, here's one for an outfielder. I think just counts as just playing bad.
10: One that I'd never heard of uh, before, but a couple of people told me about is Henry Cotto, and they nicknamed his nickname was Ava as an avocado. Yeah,
0: I, just, what? I just think that's terrible. that's very obscure yeah exactly. Um, now there was one player 40 years ago who actually had two nicknames and who was the one, one of the earliest Mariners to have his own walk-up music. that's the pink Panther theme we heard a moment ago and that's relief pitcher Bill inspect Bill the inspector Cottle.
10: He had a Sherlock Holmes cap, you know, that had kind of looked like the front and the back were both the same. It kind of went down the front and the back. And he had this magnifying glass. And he, he went around one time when our team was not hitting at all. We weren't scoring any runs. And he was, like, inspecting the bats. And we had pictures of it, you know, and he's looking through the bats. And we just call, started calling him the inspector.
0: Now, the inspector was not Bill Cottle's original nickname. That would be Cuffs, as in handcuffs.
10: He might have gotten in some trouble on the road in Cleveland, like really minor trouble. He either had was handcuffed, or somehow Coddle talked a policeman out of a pair of handcuffs.
0: Huh.
10: And he brought he brought them back to Seattle with him. And he would handcuff people to the bench. He would handcuff, I don't know, you know he would he would all be like in fun, but, um, I mean he he handcuffed our owner's wife one time to the dugout bench, and. I mean, she was almost there when the game started before he finally let her go.
0: Wait, which owner was that?
10: <laughs> it would have been George George Argers, his wife, Judy.
0: Wow, And that was a name I hadn't heard for a long time, George Ardris, one of the no. – um, not the favorite no. Mariner owner of all time, um, but uh, certainly a well-known guy. Now, um, the, the Mariner manager in those days was Renee Latchman. And he said they, uh Randy Adamick said that when um, Lashman went out to the mound to get a new pitcher, and he we wanted Bill Cottle, he'd put his two wrists together and hold him up in the air like he was handcuffed. That was so. Bill Cottle, had he had two nicknames. He had the, maybe one of the first guys to have his own walk-up music and his own special symbol from the Mariner manager when it was time for him to come and uh, pitch some relief. So, kind of a special guy. I'd love to talk to him sometime, but. And there's lots of great nicknames. Like Swaggerty is my favorite nickname in the current batch. Swaggerty? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a great name. But they, they're all throughout history, and the good ones stick around forever. Yeah. And they're uh, doing great. They won again last night. Oh, great so. game. Yeah. Cal yeah. Raleigh hit a home run there in the ninth inning, I think. Great game. Felix Bennell, all his features at
2: MyNorthWest.com.
1: me out to the ball game.
4: Me out with the, I that. Oh, me the Major League crack.
2: Baseball season's about to resume after the All-Star break and you have to be living under a rock not to know that the Mariners went into the break with a 14-game winning streak, which they will try to resume, which is pretty exciting stuff. But as our resident historian Felix Pinnell reminds us, the 1995 Mariners, for now anyway, remain the most <laughs> exciting team of all. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors.
0: Morning, Dave. Yeah, I chose that old version to take me out to the ballgame because talking about the 95 Mariners the past few days has made me feel really old. That yeah. magical season was 27 years ago. It started starting to feel like it might as well have been 1927. I had a newsroom debate with Mike Salk last Friday where I said, even if the Mariners win the World Series this year, it won't be as exciting as 1995. More about that in a moment. Quick refresher. Mariners debuted in 1977 in the Old Kingdom, They played 18 seasons of pretty mediocre baseball, never made the playoffs. There were some highlights along the way, you know, a few no-hitters, uh, Gaylord Perry's 300th win, countless bat nights or seat cushion nights. Um, 95 was different. First of all, the previous season had ended in August 1994 with a bitter labor dispute and player strike. And the World Series was canceled that year for the first time since 1904. The 95 season started late and was shortened, just 144 games instead of the usual 162. Seattle sports historian and collector Dave Eskenazi says there are definitely some parallels between 1995 and 2022, including the effect of the uh, team facing adversity, whether because of Ken Griffey's hand injury in 1995 or that brawl with the Angels a month or so ago. And Dave Eskenazi says that 95 team had something in common with winning years for the Sonics, the Seahawks, or the Storm, chemistry. It becomes contagious and you
1: start catching the brakes and everything uh, continues to kind of go right. But I, I think you don't have that unless you have a really good clubhouse. And I think that that's a common factor with all of those teams that you mentioned. You know, the the personalities that you see, it's not just a media creation. I think it's real.
0: So in August and September of 95, the Mariners kept winning implausible come-from-behind ninth inning clutch victories. They tied for the wildcard playoff slot, and they had to play a one-game tiebreaker against California at the Kingdome on October 2nd. They won that, and the team headed to the postseason for the first time in their history. Seattle went bananas. First stop was a best-of-five series, the American League Division Series, or ALDS, against the Yankees. The first two games were in New York, and the Mariners lost them both. They came back to Seattle, and the Mariners won Game 3 and Game 4, so Game 5 was do or die, and it went into extra innings. In the bottom of the 11th, the Mariners were at bat, but they were down by one point, so again, it was do or die. Joey Cora was at third, Ken Griffey was at first, Edgar Martinez came up to bat. Here's Dave Niehaus with the most famous call in Seattle history.
6: They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed to stretch. And the 0-1 pitcher on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line.
3: That the be field line for a base hit. <laughs> Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double ripped down the line. Field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom.
0: <laughs> Any excuse to play that kind of yeah. thing? Yesterday, it made me tear up hearing Dave Nehouse. That's why there's there an Edgar uh, Martinez yeah. way now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I can play it. Let's play it one more time. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> one of my most vivid memories from October of 95 is walking through my Wallingford neighborhood one night during one of those games against the Yankees. Every time something good happened for the Mariners, you could hear a giant collective a cheer that seemed uh-huh. to come from every direction. Everybody was tuned in. I love that feeling of community. I miss that feeling. I want that feeling back this season. I checked with Dory Monson. He had just started his talk show on Cairo back in 1995, and the station was still getting complaints from listeners who missed Jim French. I made up that last part. Um, Dory says, how you feel about the 95 Mariners versus the 2022 Mariners depends on how old you are. If you were a young baseball fan back in
8: 95, that run in August and into September refused to lose, first time ever making it to the playoffs, that's like a first kiss. You know, when you first time have a kiss, oh, it's just the best. And no matter how great everything is in life after that, romantically, there's nothing like that first kiss. So for people around our age, 95's probably always going to be the best. But for people who didn't live here in 95 or who are 30 and younger and weren't dialed into 95, this is their first
0: kiss. You know, in baseball, it's all about the stats and the stories and the history. So much of it is about the context. Otherwise, it's just people swinging sticks and running around in circles. And it's easy to forget how dripping with context 1995 was because of the bad things that had happened leading up to that season.
8: The Mariners got off to a great start in 94. They looked like they were going to go to the playoffs in 94. And then there's a strike, and the World Series gets canceled. Uh Spring training in 95 gets delayed. And I think a lot of fans had had it. And that's the other reason 95 is so powerful because people came from the depths of fandom to the absolute peak and it was such a swing of emotion over just a few month period that that also really heightened the intensity of it I think
0: you know I mentioned in my newsroom debate with Mike Salk after a little tussle he opened the phones on his show and took calls he told me a couple days ago that it was the diehard baseball fans uh, they disagree with me they think a World Series win this year or any time for the Mariners will be far more exciting than 1995. And the more casual fans, which I'd count myself a casual fan, they agree with me. Now, Mike also had Rick Riz on his show last Friday and asked him what he thought. Rick Riz was there alongside Dave Niehaus in 1995, of course. And he remembers one more crazy piece of context that directly impacted the future of the team back in 1995. That playoff run led the state legislature in October of 1995 to fund the stadium now called T-Mobile Park, which is something the voters had rejected in September.
10: Ken Griffey Jr. and Jay Buhner and Randy Johnson and Danny Wilson and all the guys, Mike Flowers and all those guys, if they didn't do what they did when they did it and how they did it, we wouldn't be here. So, yeah, that's it was the most impactful season in the history of our franchise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's an existential crisis in 1995 and that playoff run cured that. So and it's easy to forget that before that 95 season, there had been so many years of drama about who would own the Mariners. Would they move to Florida? Would they build something new besides the old beleaguered kingdom? And that 95 playoff run changed all that. And I love that kind of context. But it's also easy to forget that the Mariners in the uh, American League Championship Series lost to Cleveland. That ended their whole playoff run. But anyway, it's just uh, I, st- I will believe forever that 95 will always be more exciting than anything the Mariners do in the future because it was the first time. Yeah,
2: you're right. There, that was a collision of so many different issues, including how to finance the new stadium, whether it would, yep. be, would be built or not, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, I do remember uh sitting in parking lots you know, picking up various children and uh, you know, letting them wait so I could hear the end of these games. It was uh actually you were a kid back then, Colleen, you were probably Absolutely. You had to, have had to wait for your parents to show up because they were sitting in the car <laughs> listening to those games. Yeah, amazing.
9: I was 10 at the time, and I think Dory's right. If if perhaps you're 30 and below, you don't remember. But at 10 years old, that left an impression on me that still today, I think that's why I'm so shy about jumping back on board. I'll always <laughs> follow right. and love the Mariners, <laughs> but I can't take the heartbreak anymore. So I'm going to be a, you know, I, I've i learned boundaries with my sports teams. <laughs>
2: Felix Bennell, all his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave.
0: This has been a presentation of Cairo News Radio and resident historian Felix Bennell. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the pictures and accounts of this history podcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball is probably just fine. Go Mariners!